The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, I'm uh, Leslie Albrecht, Deputy Personal Finance Editor of MarketWatch, and welcome to Barron's Live. We're glad you're joining us. Um, I'm here with my colleague, Jacob Passy. He is a personal finance reporter for MarketWatch, and he uh, covers real estate. Hello. Welcome, Jacob. Glad to be here. (laughs) Um, Good. I'm glad to have you because it's a very exciting time. Exciting being a, a word. I'm not sure if that's really, you know, that can be good or bad um, for the real estate market. So people have a lot of questions about what's happening and we wanted to help readers and viewers sort through some of those those questions. Um, and I just re- want to remind the audience that they can send questions into the Q&A and we will read them out loud. Um, so let's start off with our first reader question, which was submitted before this event even started, which is from Lisa. Uh, She wants to know, how do first-time buyers compete in this market, especially in overpriced popular areas such as Austin, Texas? Do you have any tips? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, And in fact, lately, we've actually seen a drop-off in demand among first-time home buyers, according to mortgage application data, because it it is a really tough market. When you're a first-time buyer, you don't have you know, the equity in another home to rely on for the down payment in your next home. So um, it's tough. Uh, I think the first thing to keep in mind is building as big of a down payment as possible. Now, you don't want to put yourself in a position where you spend all your savings. I mean, you need to keep, especially if you're buying a home, you need to keep that rainy day fund well stocked uh, in case you ever have to, you know, fix a leaking pipe, fix the roof, things like that. Suddenly those are your responsibilities as a homeowner. Um, But it is important to build as large of a down payment as possible because especially in popular markets like Austin, you're going to be competing with a lot of buyers who are using cash um, or investors who are buying up homes to turn into rentals. Um, And so all cash buyers will have an advantage against anyone using a mortgage. So um, building a large down payment can help you. It's also helpful because it reduces, you know, the monthly cost for you as as a homeowner, once you become a homeowner, um, the more you, you put towards the home from the get-go, the, the lower your monthly payment will be. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, anything you can do to sweeten the deal, whether that's, you know, offering to the seller flexibility in terms of your move-in date, um, you could, you know, offer to waive um appraisals that's a very popular thing in a lot of markets uh waiving the home inspection things like that those those contingencies that are you know in a in a calmer market are pretty standard you can start to waive some of those obviously the more contingencies you waive the more risk you're presenting yourself so um if you waive the home inspection contingency and then something comes up that would have scared you away, you might be in a bind. Um, If you waive the financing contingency, which basically means that um, 
if the mortgage lender decides not to offer as big of a loan as you need, you'll cover the difference. You know, if you waive that contingency, you might be forced to pay more. So, you know, think twice before doing that. Um, but but those are things you can do to sweeten the deal. But it is, you know, you know, unambiguously a tough market for first time buyers right now. Yeah, didn't we we did a story pretty recently about people waiving contingencies. Um and uh, I'm trying to remember. Actually, maybe that was like a year ago. Uh, but... Yeah, it was in Austin. The the main home buyers oh, right. we, we interviewed were in Austin. Um, and yeah, it was a it was a tough situation. They talked about you know getting passed over, and and that's the other thing you need to be prepared for as a first time buyer is you're probably not going to be successful with the first bid you make, and you're going to need to make bids on lots of homes. So the more flexibility you give yourself in terms of the type of home you want or where you want to live, the better your chances will be. Yeah, it seems like a situation where um, you need to be ready to act fast, but you also have to have a lot of patience. And so it's like, it's when you know how people say like, oh, it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. But like, in some cases, home buying can be a sprint, right? Because you have to like, activate your offer and like, you know, tell them what your financing situation is really quickly. Um, but at the same time, you got to be ready to like be patient and wait for the the right thing to come along for you, the right house for you. No, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's a good comparison. It's kind of a bit of both. Um, yeah, you're, you're definitely it's going to be a fight. Um, but yeah, you, you don't want to be caught unawares. You want to have everything, you know, in line, all of your paperwork um, lined up so that when you can pull the trigger, you're ready to do so. Yeah. Um, speaking of Austin, what are some of the other places where there's been really rapid um, home price growth in the U.S.? I think there's some kind of surprising spots other than the usual suspects, right? So we've seen a lot of growth in some of these smaller cities across the country, especially in the like Mountain West region. So cities like Boise, Idaho, um, you know, places in Utah, like Salt Lake City, we're seeing really runaway growth. Um, some of that is because of folks moving from pricier markets in places like California. Um, and they're being lured by the once cheap home prices in some of these areas. Uh, but that that is relative. Uh, so like Boise is a great example because, uh, you know, even before the pandemic, it was getting to be really popular, uh, especially with a lot of these West Coast transplants. And it's a, it's a small city. So, you know, a, a, a sudden surge of people, um, you know, translates into rapidly rising home prices because they don't have the capacity in a smaller city like Boise to um, to infuse the city with more housing. So um, so we, we've seen runaway growth there. Um, you're seeing growth in um, certainly in Austin. Um, but the interesting thing about a city like Austin is the growth there is certainly substantial. But Texas, as opposed to a lot of other states, is very um, flexible with its zoning regulations. So in Texas, they, you know, prices are are growing rapidly, but they're actually, you know, building homes at a pretty, pretty steady clip. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, other cities that with that we've seen really prominent growth. Um, Phoenix, Arizona is another one. And that's, again, kind of in that Mountain West, Rocky Mountain region, um, more on the southern end than, than Boise, but but still kind of in that region. And Florida, um, all across Florida, M Miami, Orlando, Tampa, 
home prices have been skyrocketing. Um, and a lot of folks moved down there during the pandemic, uh, which is contributing to things, but it was a popular state to live in even before then. Um, so those are some parts of the country where we've seen really market growth. And where are we seeing, um, where are the like still affordable pockets of the US? Or maybe, maybe I'm not even sure if affordable is the right word, but relatively speaking, like where are we seeing maybe slower, slower price growth and relatively more affordable housing? Yeah, so it's all relative, obviously. If you're coming from somewhere like California, pretty much anywhere across the country is going to be affordable to you. But if you're, you know, not moving with uh, with the money you've you've earned from selling your home in in Silicon Valley, then it's going to be pricier. In terms of markets that um, are still more affordable, I would I would kind of target the the Midwest um, and Rust Belt. That kind of stretch, like the upper Midwest and like places like you know Western Pennsylvania, Western New York, those markets still are very affordable. They they have seen a slower pace of growth than other parts of the country, although still pretty high. Um, and you know they're they're the kind of markets you know when you see best markets to to buy a home as a first time buyer, those are those are the types of markets you see places like Indianapolis. Um, Utica, um, you know, the, the kind of smaller cities throughout the Midwest, um, or even some of the larger cities like Detroit, you know, that, that in Chicago, the, the home price growth there has been slower um, than in places like Phoenix and Miami. Yeah. Um, okay, we've got another reader, reader question or viewer question, I guess, in this case from Neil, who has a question that I think so many people will identify with, which is um, rates are beginning to go up, mortgage rates and houses are house, home prices are going up simultaneously. So how much higher do interest rates have to go before pr home prices begin going down or at least leveling off? Or is the investment speculator market going to keep pushing the prices up? So like, when are, are we going to see some relief from these housing prices because of, of uh, rising interest rates? Right. No, that's a great question. Um, I think there is already some relief in terms of slower price growth. Now, granted, rising prices aren't great for a buyer, you know, even if they're rising at a slow, slow pace. But the pace of home price growth in the past few months has certainly slowed down considerably, in large part due to the um the run-up in rates and so for those who are not aware interest rates on um mortgages you know depending on who you ask are either approaching or already at five percent for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage uh and if you compare that to a little over a year ago um a little over a year ago the the average rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage was below three percent so we're talking about you know over one percentage point higher uh from you know over the past year and that's a major increase and it's it, and the pace of this growth in mortgage rates is kind of unmatched in recent history i think it's the fastest pace of growth if i recall since the 90s so we you know many home buyers will have never seen anything like this um and many homeowners will have never seen anything like this um so in terms of you know it's it's hard to say when prices would reverse or, or stop growing. Um, and that's largely because prices are growing fairly for fairly organic reasons. This is not a repeat of, 
you know, the housing bubble that preceded the Great Recession, uh, when you saw home prices surging in part because of loose lending standards, and it was really easy to get a mortgage and that, you know, greased the wheels. These days, the reason prices are rising is because of the shortage of homes across the country. Um, depending on who you ask, we're short about, you know, you know, anywhere between four and five million homes nationwide. Um, and that too actually relates back to the house, last housing crisis. Um, after the recession, home builders really slowed down the pace of home construction um, because they were hurting after the recession and were sitting on, you know, vacant homes that they had built uh, speculatively. So after all that, they slowed down the pace that they were building new homes. And that pace of construction did not keep in line with the pace of population growth and household formation growth. Millennials were getting married, having kids during that time, and now they all want homes. So um, so because of that imbalance between supply and demand driven by this housing shortage, uh, that's what's been pushing prices so high. Um, it would take significantly higher mortgage rates to really reverse that. You would really, really need to cut into housing demand because even with a slightly lower level of demand than we had, you know, back in last summer when it was, you know, kind of at record levels, even at that low, even a lower level than that would still be high enough to push prices higher given the housing shortage nationwide. Mm -hmm. So there was one report recently that was from, um, I think, analysts at UBS um, that estimated that rates would need to rise, I think they said to either 5.25% or maybe it was above 6%. I can't recall off the top of my head, but rates would need to be significantly higher than they are now, which isn't to say that won't happen. Um, rates have moved much higher, much more quickly than most analysts expected this year, but we're still a ways off from uh, an interest rate level where home buying demand would really come down. Yeah, um, it's really incredible how fast they've gone up. And I remember, I. I don't know if you have the most recent um, data about this at your fingertips, but um, I think it's interesting to like see how much the rate increase um, affects someone's monthly mortgage payment. And mm -hmm. I think back in back in September 2021, when rates were at like three percent, um, the economist from Realtor.com told us that that would uh, at today's rate, the your monthly mortgage payment on a medium priced home would be one hundred and fifty dollars higher than it had been a year ago with 25% of the increase because of higher rates and 125 of that because of higher home prices. That was like, you know, over a year ago. But I wonder, do you happen to know like what the latest is on that? I think, I, I don't know the exact level. I think it was, I think the monthly mortgage payment is now $300 larger than it was a year yeah. ago because of the combination of rising mortgage rates and rising the home prices. So, I mean, yeah, it, the, the two happening simultaneously, that, that just... To the, to the earlier point about how hard it is for first-time buyers, that that underscores the challenge right there. I mean, you're, yeah. you're talking about a significantly larger monthly payment for home buyers right now because of those two things happening simultaneously. Yeah. Um, the other thing that we saw, we've seen during the pandemic is an increase in um, purchasing of second homes. Um, and a reader has a question, Lee says, what are the, which I think is actually leveling off now, according to your latest information, but maybe you can tell us. Yeah. Um, Lee wants to know, what are the advantages of actually buying a second home versus using Airbnb or similar services as a way to spend time in other locales? So yeah, that, uh, that's a good question, right? Uh, 
is it better? Is it worth the investment to buy a second home, or should you just rent an Airbnb? Yeah, I, and and that's a great question. Like you said, so there was research uh, from Redfin that came out this week that showed that the demand for second homes among home buyers uh, was at now at the lowest level since May 2020. So that's you know, and and at that time, back in May of 2020, that was before we actually saw the boom in second home purchasing that that dominated you know the housing market for quite some time um it's a great question i think you know whether or not to buy a second home it's it's a tough one when you're comparing it to just renting an airbnb that's tough because it, i think it comes down to the um your you know an individual family's wants and needs you know and, and weighing those pros and cons. Obviously, a second home has benefits in terms of, you know, if you're not using it year round, uh, or if your family's not using it year round, you can rent it out yourself, uh, although that can come with headaches. Um, so you can you can rent it on a platform like Airbnb yourself, you know, for certain months of the year and then use it yourself uh, for the other months of the year. Um, but, you know, then you have to deal with tenants, cleaning, et cetera. It's not, it's not straightforward. Um, there are tax implications folks need to be aware of. Um, your the, the deductibility of mortgage interest uh, for second homes was removed in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, during the Trump administration. Um, and so, you know, years ago, the, the situation might have been a little bit different. So that's another thing to consider. Um, and then it, it depends on what your, your preferences are. You know, if you own a second home in a location, let's say, you know, if you live in New York City and you own a second home, in the Hamptons or upstate, that's one place you can go to all the time. But if you don't like going to the same place year in and year out, and you'd rather have, you know, have the ability to change it up, that that's something to consider. So, you know, um, buying and, and buying a home is, is obviously a big expense. You know, if, if you're looking for, if you're looking for, um, stability in terms of where you're, you're purchasing and, and I'm, loathe to, to recommend this too often, you know, you might want to consider something like a timeshare uh, instead, you know, if you're, if you're, especially if you're talking about like popular vacation destinations where there may be timeshare properties, you know, that might be something to look into because then you're not having to handle the actual maintenance and things like that yourself. Because let's keep in mind, if you own the second home and a pipe breaks or there's a storm, uh, you'll have to fix that damage yourself. Uh, whereas if you own like a timeshare, I mean, you'll pay a monthly maintenance or a yearly maintenance fee, uh, but you won't necessarily have to, you know, handle that work yourself. So it, it's a, it's an interesting question, but, but if you're in the market for a second home, demand for that has fallen. So you might have a little bit of an easier time than you would have a year or two ago. Yeah. And also, I mean, I guess another consideration is aren't second homes sometimes in areas that are seeing more extreme weather related to climate change, hurricanes, floods, then you have to worry about like flood insurance, which is getting, isn't it, is, is flood insurance getting more expensive? We, we've written about that. Flood insurance, I don't know. Or, it, flood insurance is just getting complicated. because It's more getting of, more complicated, yeah. Yeah, in a lot of markets you've seen private flood insurance. I mean, private, most flood insurance is done through the National Flood Insurance Program, but it can be very expensive. There mm -hmm. are some private insurers, um, but they, that market is really small. Um, there, I think there are, being, there are efforts in the federal government to grow the private flood insurance market, just as, you know, to provide, you know, more com 
competitive pricing. But um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, yeah, if you're talking about beachfront property, pretty much anywhere across the country, that is something you want to factor in. If this is the type of property, if you're planning on buying a home with the thought of passing it down from generation to generation to generation, and it's a beachfront property, you might want to yeah. think twice about that. That, that, that that's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, okay. So a few months ago, no, when was it? When did we start the big move? You started a, a column called the big move. Where yeah, people... I started it over a year, like in okay. 2020. I don't know. Time, time right. doesn't exist anymore during the pandemic. Right. So anyway, um, you started this column and it's been such a hit because people write in with people with their questions about um, their real estate conundrums. And it really shows you kind of the breadth and depth of people's um, anxieties and um and like the issues that come up with people when they have um, real estate transactions. So, um, what are some of the like uh, what what are what are some of the questions that you get the most from from homeowners when they they write in to the big move? I think the most common questions I get are around inheritance, which does make sense. It's a it's a you know tricky subject, and you know the best I, I get very frequently asked the best way to leave a home to one's children or other relatives or friends, family, you know, um, and, and lots of questions around deeds and things like that. Um, I don't know why, but in particular, um, I've received a lot of questions and there's been a lot of interest, particularly in whether or not to do a quick claim deed where you basically, you know, file a motion with the local land recording office, property recording office, county office, uh, to basically change the deed from one person to the other without, you know, a home sale transaction, um, which has a lot of tax implications. Um, I, I don't, you know, it's, I think probably, I think if you look online, people present it as this sort of easy way around probate courts and, you know, it's very little paperwork actually involved. Um, so it seems easier, but what I have found in a lot of the circumstances I've been presented with by readers is it creates a lot of unanticipated headaches and, um, you know, in some cases can actually cost the folks money. Um, there was one, you know, ups, you know, unfortunate circumstance uh, a reader presented me with where their late mother had quit claimed her home to her and, um, she was wondering, she was now, I think, getting ready to sell the home and was curious about the tax implications. And when you do something like that, which a lot of people don't realize, you basically um, are forsaking the tax benefits that we afford to heirs. Um, if you inherit a home, you get what's called a step up in basis. So the cost of the property um, rather than being the original cost the original owner paid is the value of the property at the time of that person's death. So then that could be a huge difference. So in this case, this woman basically, because her mom had quit claimed the deed to her rather than just leaving the home to her um, in her will, um, it meant that she was not gonna be able to take advantage of the step up in basis and therefore her capital gains tax was going to, you know, what she was going to owe in capital gains tax was going to be significantly higher. So, and I think that's why a lot of people are concerned about inheritance is they know about the capital gains tax and they want to avoid it because they want to get the most out of 
what is essentially a gift that their you know deceased loved one is leaving for them. Um, but but it's a it's really tricky, and it's something that I think if I could emphasize to anyone tuning in, please consult uh, a lawyer or a financial advisor before you make any decisions around that. Because um, I've seen a lot of readers who have you know found really difficult circumstances because of unforeseen issues. Yeah. Um, okay. We have, oh, we only have a few minutes left. Well, seven minutes, but um, <laughs> we have another question from Neil, um, which touches on another uh, interesting trend in the, in the market. He says he's, he's heard that about a third of the purchaser purchasers now are second home slash speculators. I think maybe, or maybe he's referring to like investors. Um, and if developers, speculators caused the 08 crash, why wouldn't the second home speculators do the same now? I guess I think the real, what he's asking is like, what, what's the role of, of speculators right now in the housing market and why isn't that gonna lead to another uh, housing crash? It's a great question. Um, I don't know, I feel like a third seems like a large number to me, but we definitely have seen increasingly more investor activity in the market. Um, I think a lot of that is because of how strong the housing market is right now, especially a lot of these investors are buying up properties to then rent them out. Um, and so they're buying up prop and the rental market, which we haven't really touched on rents have risen in tandem with home prices. Um, they, they, the, the rate of rent price growth has slowed a little bit, um, but it's still well above average, um, well above the pre pandemic average, I should say. Um, and, and rents are, are rising in a lot of parts of the country. And I think that the return on rents um, and, and rental properties um, is attractive to investors, especially those looking to diversify. Um, and as for why we wouldn't necessarily see a crash like in 2008, well, I don't want to ever say never because I, I, I would never want to say that. But going back to what I was saying before about how the dynamics driving home prices higher are a little bit more organic this time around, um, that is definitely a part of it. Um, there is a real shortage of housing in this country, um, at least for now. And we've not yet seen, you know, uh, home building activity. I mean, it's picked up pace, but not to the level that most economists would say is needed to really put a dent into that shortage. Um, and, and, and home builders are much more cautious these days. We've seen a little bit of speculative building, but not a ton. And so they're, they're really, and, and that's in part because of all the other, you know, inflation related issues in terms of supply chain issues and the cost of materials, the availability of labor, all those things are slowing down home building. So as long as there's this shortage that's largely responsible for prices moving higher, um, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the, the relationship between supply and demand. I, I feel like, you know, investor activity is not going to be, I would not expect it to be a cause of any sort of crash. And to that extent, to investors purchasing up, buying up homes in the last crisis was certainly an issue. But it was not the main driver of the, the crash last time around. I mean, that had a lot more to do with like speculative uh, investments into like 
derivatives, mortgage-backed securities, and the loose lending standards, the no-doc mortgages, things like that. Those were bigger contributors. I mean, obviously, the, the speculative home buying that we saw last time around, you know, drove prices higher. So it perhaps made the bubble a little bit worse, but it wasn't, I would argue, the cause of the crash, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, oh my gosh, there's so many things I want to ask you about, but we only have a couple of minutes left. One one is, um, have there been any, uh, speaking of loose lending standards, have there been any changes recently in mortgage um, underwriting that would make it easier or harder for folks to get mortgages that people should know about? Um, if anything, it's almost the opposite. Um, I've spoken with with um, experts on the mortgage industry, and something we saw at the start of the pandemic um, was mortgage lenders got much more, I don't know if stingy is the right word, but they got much more particular about who they were willing to lend to right. because of the, the very brief, you know, recession we saw right at the start of the pandemic. Um, and the the you know rapid rise in in unemployment that that caused lenders to get really nervous really quickly and so they quickly tightened lending standards um, and then since then they haven't really had a whole lot of reason to loosen them because for most of that time since the since March 2020 mortgage rates were so low that they were seeing really steady flows of applications for refinancing and refinances are less risky than mortgages used to purchase homes because you have a sense of whether the person's been repaying or been making on-time payments and you know you have all that data that you can rely on as a mortgage lender and so because of all that they they've they were not quick to loosen there's been a little bit of loosening i don't want to act like there's been none but mm -hmm. we really haven't seen mortgage credit standards change much um that could change in the coming months if demand really does subside. And, you know, anecdotally, I've seen folks in the housing industry on Twitter, on housing Twitter, um, you know, making references to hearing of lenders who are starting to think a little bit more creatively is one word I heard used, which is a little scary uh, about their lending activity, but, uh, and their, their underwriting standards. But I think for the for the most part, um, there's not been a, a lot of, uh, we're, we're not seeing lenders take too much risk. And also, let's keep in mind, uh, regulations were imposed post-financial crisis last time around that limit to, to what extent lenders can really do anything that, you know, risky or comparative to what we saw in like 2004. So, um, but no, that, that that's a really interesting question. And, and that, again... Kind of also underscores why it's tough, tough for first-time buyers. You, the the credit standards are, are really high right now compared to years previous. So uh, so that that's yet another reason why it's tough to buy a home if you're a first-time buyer. Gosh, you know, I was just thinking about how the job market and how like people are renegotiating, getting higher salaries, or moving to jobs with higher salaries. So. That would be a good thing to do if you're trying to be a first-time home buyer. On the other hand, they want to see stability, and so maybe job switching is not the greatest thing to do. I'm just remembering, like at the height of the pandemic, when during like home closings, mortgage companies were verifying, doing job verifications, like in the middle of the closing transaction to make sure that the buyer still had their jobs. Um, and it seems like things are different now. Uh, but on that note, we're going to have to sign off, Jacob. Um, it was great to have you and we will be joined tomorrow by MarketWatch's 
senior editor, Sylvia Ascarelli, who's going to talk to Chris Cunningham, who uh, retired to Panama, which would be a very cool story to hear. Um, Jacob, thanks for coming along for our ride. Yeah, glad to be here. And if there are any <laughs> questions we didn't get to, feel free to email me. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I was going to put in a plug for the big yeah. move. We're always looking for questions and people like we didn't, we didn't even, we just scratched the surface of the big move, but it has such great questions from people. It's informative. And Jacob always comes up with really informative answers and you will, you'll learn something and be entertained by every big move column. I guarantee it. Awesome. So that's, <laughs> that's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.